on. And uh, after we find out if my microphone's on, then we're going to, uh, in a few minutes, dismiss the children to children's church. Before we do that, we have something special for the little ones this morning. So it's kindergarten through second grade. Is that the children's church age? If you guys would come up here first, and then we'll dismiss you to children's church. So if you're like this big, and you're going to go to children's church, come on up here right now. And Adam and Ella, even though you're not this big, if you come up and join, that would be great. Come on up. All right. Go and grab a seat on the step. Don't play with the tambourine. Hey, this is Adam. This is Adam Mello. Adam's going to be in high school in September. You guys can grab a seat right here and kind of look over your shoulders. That would be great. I need a volunteer, someone who can stand really still for about five minutes. Can you stand? Come on up. What's your name? Noah. Oh, perfect. Noah, come right up here. Stand right next to Adam, all right? Wow, we got Noah and Adam up here. Hey, does anyone know what the name Adam means? Anyone know what it means? It means man. You know who the man ever in the whole world was? Adam. Not this Adam, but a different Adam. Yeah, Adam. Adam. Hey, um, I want you to start thinking about stuff that your parents don't want you to get on your clothes. Start thinking about that. And while you're doing that, we're going to wrap these guys up together in some toilet paper. Can you hold that, Adam, right there? You guys, oh, hang on to that. Get that right. Start thinking. You guys thinking about things that your mommy and daddy don't want you to get on your clothes? All right. Raise your hand if you, if you can think of something that your mommy... All right, what, what, what's your mommy and daddy not want you to get in your clothes? Drinks. Drinks. Like what kind of drinks? Like grape juice that's really like staying your clothes? Things that stay in your clothes. Can you think of things that stay in your clothes? Mm-hmm. Cherries. Yeah, you don't want to get cherry stained. How about... Paint. You don't want to get paint on your clothes. Chocolate. Chocolate sauce, especially. Grass stains. Yeah, that's nasty. Permanent marker. That's a good one. Ooh. Permanent marker. All right, that's probably pretty good here, huh? Toilet paper. You don't want to get toilet paper on your clothes, he says. Anything else you don't want to get? Your parents don't want you to get on your clothes? Cat fur. Oh, yeah. Veggies? Red juice. Oh, red juice. I thought you said veggies. All right. Red juice. Yeah. Any kind of colored juice. All right. That's probably pretty good. All right. Hey, now, I want you guys to use your imagination. I want you to think that in this bucket is stuff that your parents wouldn't want you to get on your clothes. All right? Let's pretend it's... How about... Paint. Chocolate sauce. Ketchup. All those things you guys mentioned. All right. Now... I want you to think, in the past week, have you done anything kind or nice or good? Have you done a good deed? Raise your hand if you've done a good deed in the past week. You all have? All right. What I want you to do is I want you to reach in this bucket, and I want you to take out of the bucket your good deed, but it's that yucky stuff that your parents don't want you to get on your clothes. So pretend in this bucket is chocolate sauce and ketchup and all the nasty stuff, but you're going to reach into it. Reach in there, grab a handful of it. Now tell me your good deed as you throw it on Adam. Yell it out so they can all hear. Try to grab, yep, grab, grab a whole bunch of that yucky stuff. Grab it, yep, get it off, and get some. Oh, ooh. Careful, you don't want this to spill on you. Empty. Just in case you were wondering. I thought about filling it with chocolate sauce. I thought I'd lose some support of a lot of parents if I didn't. <laughs> 
All right. You guys, when I say three, I want you to throw it at Adam and Noah and yell out the good thing that you've done in the past week. One, two, three. Throw it at him. You obeyed. All right. Give it up for these guys. Woo! Not yet. I'll just a second. Now, that sounds silly. Like, you just threw yucky stuff on Adam and Noah. But, it, but I told you that it was like the good stuff that you had done. What's up with that? Isn't good stuff, good stuff, and yucky stuff, yucky stuff? Well, you know what? The Bible teaches us that because of how unrighteous we are and how unholy we are and how sinful we are, that even the good things that we do, even our acts of righteousness, are like filthy rags in God's eyes. And that's what Isaiah teaches us. So your good deeds, those good things that you've done, it's like that yucky stuff that you're not supposed to get on your clothes, and now it's all over Adam and Noah. Hey, I got some really cool, really cool news for you guys this morning. But take your imagination. You've got to pretend that I'm Jesus for a second. Can you do that? This will help. <laughs> what do you think? Am I going to fool anyone? I don't think so. But pretend. Use your imagination. I'm Jesus. Now, I want you to pretend that you're in Noah's place, that you're wrapped up with Adam. Each one of you guys are wrapped up with Adam. So pretend you're there. Now, this is a really cool thing. God sends Jesus down. You know what Jesus does? He does this. I gotta get all of it. Alright. Every last bit of it. He takes your sins. Oh, he takes your sins and he throws them away. But you know what? He does. Yeah, he dies on the cross and takes your sins away. Absolutely. But then he does an incredible thing. In addition to dying on the cross and taking away our filthy rags, this is what he does. Get close together, guys. He wraps us up in his righteousness. How about that? When God looks down on us, if we put our faith in Jesus, he doesn't see our filthy rags anymore. They're all gone. He sees his son Jesus' righteousness. How cool is that? Hey, let me pray, and we'll send you guys off to children's church. Let's pray. Every eye closed, every head back. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that when we were still covered with poopy, nasty rags of our sin, that you sent Jesus to take that sin away, to take it upon himself, and to give us his righteousness. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And the children of the Lord all said, Amen. Amen. All right, now without knocking over that guitar, if you could head around that corner to Children's Church, that would be great. Thank you, Adam. Good job, guys. Some people think doctrine is a dirty word. And uh, a lot of preachers today refuse to preach doctrinal sermons. You know, people kind of shy away from this idea of doctrine. But doctrine is, is biblical truth. And here at Social Baptist Church, we think it's absolutely essential uh, that we learn and, and teach biblical truth. Not only for our own spiritual growth, but for the health and vitality of our congregation. So this morning I'm going to ask you to do some really hard work. Because um, we're going to look at a doctrine which is a really, in some ways, a very difficult doctrine, at least for me, to get my arms around and to understand. But we're going to search God's Word a little bit together and see if we can uh, try to get our minds around this, this doctrine of what we call imputed righteousness. Here's the plan. I'll do my best uh, to explain 
and teach on imputed righteousness. And then we're going to have like a seventh inning stretch in the middle of the sermon. We're going to have a song. You can stand up and stretch a little bit. And then we'll sit back down. And then I'm going to try to apply the biblical truth that we've looked at to our lives. And then Pastor Seth will come and lead us uh, to the Lord's table in communion. So uh, well, that's the plan. But before we go any further, will you guys join me in prayer? Father God, you are an awesome and holy and mighty God. It is a great privilege and responsibility to bring your word before your people. Lord, I'm not worthy of this past, so I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would give me the right words to speak, that the words that I speak would be true to you, that because they're true, they would be powerful. Lord, that if I say anything that isn't true, that it would be quickly forgotten. Lord, uh, be with us this next half an hour. Help us to understand this truth of imputed righteousness. I ask it in Jesus' name. The people Lord said, Amen. Okay, I want to take a little quick survey here. Um, raise your hand if you think it matters to God what you wear to church on Sunday morning. No one thinks... Fantastic, but I can come in shorts next week. No, I... I should say, does it matter what the youth pastor wears to church on Sunday morning? No. Okay, raise your hand if you think it matters what you wear to church on Sunday morning. Just a couple, huh? All right. How about... Uh, Raise your hand if you think the way you're dressed right now is pleasing to God. The rest of you are upsetting God? Come on. All right, here's an easy one. Slam dunk. Raise your hand if you think you're looking better than the youth pastor. Come on, get those hands up there. Raise your hand if you think there's a dress code in heaven. Yeah, we got one. Well, here, yeah, two, three, yeah. That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. There's a dress code in heaven. You have to have a certain cloak, a certain robe, a certain dress on in order to get in. If you don't have the right clothes, you ain't going to get in. And this isn't my idea. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 22, in the Pew Bible, we're going to uh, be on page 979. We're going to look at Matthew 22 real quickly. We're going to read a parable of the wedding banquet, the parable of heaven, the first 14 verses of Matthew 22. So you can see that this isn't my idea. This is Jesus' idea that we need a certain uh, cloak, a certain robe, a certain clothing to get into heaven. Matthew 22, starting at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants. He said, Tell those who have been invited that I have, that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle, had been uh, butchered and everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, those that were doing the inviting, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then the king came in to see the guests. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Uh-oh. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, and throw him outside into the darkness. 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty tough parable. It's the parable of the kingdom of heaven. The banquet represents heaven. God sends out his invitation to these people and they don't show up, so he sends his invitation out to other people and they come. But there's one guy there that comes and he doesn't have the right clothes on. And where does he get sent? Out to darkness. He's banished to darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds a lot like hell to me. He doesn't get into the banquet because he doesn't have the right clothes on. Turn ahead, if you would, in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Luke. In the 15th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells a few stories about the lost things. Lost sheep, lost coin. We're going to look at the lost son and the prodigal son. Most of you are familiar with this story. We're just going to read it quickly. We'll start at verse 11 and we'll go to verse 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to the distant country, and they squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and he starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Hey, I want us to just uh, look at the, the gifts that the son received. Here's the son. He asks for his inheritance. He takes off, spends all of his dad's hard-earned money while his dad's still alive. Comes to his senses, realizes that life's miserable. He wants to go back home and just hire himself out as a, as a slave for his dad. His dad welcomes him in and gives him three things. There's two things that we're not going to look at this morning. They're for another sermon. Uh, one is a signet ring, which is a symbol of authority. And the other is uh, sandals. Slaves went barefoot, so it was a sign of freedom. What I want to look at is the robe here. What is this robe that the father gives this returning son? Well, I want you to see that it wasn't the son's robe. He didn't go up to his son's room, to his wardrobe, and find one of his old suits and bring it down for him. It was actually the dad's robe, and it was a robe reserved for special guests and special occasions. So the robe belonged to the father. The robe belonged to the father. If you would uh, open your sermon notes, it looked like this. If it helps you to follow along, you can fill in the blanks as we go here. This keep, helps keep you awake, helps you pay attention. If not, you can just discard it. But I want you to see uh, from the Matthew passage that the proper clothing is required to get into heaven. And now from this parable in Luke, I want you to see that the robe is given 
and received, not earned. The robe is given and received, not earned. Unlike the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, or the green jacket in the Masters, or a black belt in karate, this robe that the son receives, it wasn't based on his hard work. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't based on his merit, his skill, his strength, his diligent practice, or his achievement. It belonged to the father. It was for special occasions, and it was given to the son. Now, I'm guessing the son was covered with filthy rags. It doesn't say that in the parable, but he'd been out feeding pigs and had spent all his money, so I'm guessing he was smelling pretty bad. He was pretty, pretty much tattered. Um, he comes home, and he gets this, this beautiful robe that he hasn't earned. Now, while I believe that these two parables of Jesus support the doctrine that I'm going to talk about this morning, there's no biblical scholar worth his salt who would base a doctrine simply on a couple of parables. That would be really dangerous. That would be a dangerous use of the scriptures. So I want us to turn to Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul does some heavy-duty theology and teaches this doctrine. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. In the Pew Bible, that's page 1116. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. You tracking? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Shall we just close the Bible and go home, or do you think we ought to look at this a little bit? This is, uh, this is some pretty, pretty heavy-duty stuff. We're not going to look at it verse by verse, but I do want us to, uh, to hone in on a few verses and see if we can make some sense out of what Paul is teaching the Christians in Rome here. Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin. Sin entered the world through Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam. Now, uh, most of us in this sanctuary this morning probably know the story in Genesis. It's in Genesis 3. It's on page 3 in your pew Bible if you're not familiar with it. But it's the story of Adam and Eve in the garden first created humans, are living in this beautiful, close, intimate, loving relationship with God the Creator, God the Father, in this beautiful garden where there's no death, sin, evil, illness. It's wonderful. And there's trees everywhere with all kinds of fruit on them, and they can eat of all these trees 
except for this one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story, the serpent comes and says, Eve, did God really say that? Here, eat this, it's good. Eve, Adam, eat. And everything changes. Everything changes. The Bible says that death entered the world. Before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, disobeyed and rebelled against God, they were going to live forever. As a result of rebelling against God, disobeying God, physical death comes into the world. But not just physical death, also, also spiritual death. After they ate of the, of the fruit, they were afraid of God. They hid from God. They heard God's voice and they hid because they knew they had messed it up. And God was now to be feared. Their close, personal, intimate relationship had been severed. And there was, there was a separation between Adam and Eve and God. And the separation results in spiritual death. Spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about that separation and uses a nasty word that we don't like to talk about much, although Baptists talk about it more than most. And the word is hell. Hell. As a result of Adam and Eve disobeying God, sin is into the world, and we all are guilty and deserve hell. Sin entered the world through Adam. The result of sin is death. The result of sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death. Death came to all because all sinned. Death came to all because all sinned. A couple of chapters earlier in the same epistle, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a universal problem. Thanks to Adam, all have sinned. Let's look at the first part, just the first part of verses 15 and 17. But the gift of, but excuse me, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, we'll stop there. And then verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. Many died by the trespass of Adam. Many died by the trespass of Adam. How do many die? How does death reign as the result of Adam's trespass? Is it fair for you and me today to have any responsibility for what Adam did, I don't know how many thousands of generations ago? That's what this is teaching, I believe. Somehow, through Adam's disobedience and rebellion, death is reigning. And I inherit that condemnation and that death. Well, the answer is that God imputes Adam's sin to all of Adam's descendants. This is the doctrine we're looking at. This is imputed sin, which is going to lead us to imputed righteousness. God imputes Adam's sin to all of Adam's descendants. We are wrapped up with Adam in Adam's sin. Now, picture yourself standing up here next to Adam and having toilet paper wrapped around you. Only the toilet paper, you know, you can't just walk away from it. It's steel cables. It's super glue. We're wrapped together with Adam. Adam's sin has been credited to us. It's been imputed to us. Please turn with me, if you would, to the next page in your sermon notes. And at the bottom on the right side, it says, Impute Imputation. Let's take a second just to read the first part of this definition. This is from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministries online theological dictionary. It says, Impute, imputation, to reckon to someone the blessing, curse, debt, etc. of another. 
Adam's sin is imputed to all people. Therefore, we are all guilty before God. We'll stop there uh, for now and go back there in a minute. The doctrine of imputed sin is kind of like a company merger. A little bit like a company merger. One, uh, one company is deeply in debt. That would be Adam. And the other company is also in debt. That would be us. In God's eyes, we're merged together with Adam. We share his liabilities and his indebtedness. We're partners in the depths of his unrighteousness. We don't bring any righteousness of our own to the merger. And Adam's righteousness is so great that together we are completely bankrupt. Completely bankrupt of righteousness. So bankrupt that even our good deeds, our most righteous acts, letting that person out in traffic, even those things appear as filthy rags for a holy and righteous God. Even the good stuff we do looks bad to God. Because we're stuck to Adam. We're stuck to Adam. It's kind of stinky. That'll be a youth ministry expression, not a theological expression. Let's look again at verse 17. Verse 17. We only read half of it. The other half's a little bit more encouraging. For if by the trespass one man, if by the trespass of one man, that would be Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? By God's grace, God's righteousness is imputed to all who receive Jesus Christ. By God's grace, God's righteousness is imputed to all who receive Jesus Christ. Let's go back to that, uh, that definition. If I could find my sheet here. Impute, imputation. To reckon to someone the blessing, curse, debt, etc. of another. Adam's sin is imputed to all people. Therefore, we are all guilty before God. Our sins were put upon, imputed to Jesus on the cross, where he became sin on our behalf and died with them. Therefore, our sins are forgiven. Understanding imputation is very important. Imputation is the means of our salvation. Our sins were put upon, imputed to Jesus on the cross. Our sins were given to Jesus. When he died on the cross, our sins, in a sense, died with him. The righteousness that was his through his perfect obedience to the Father and his complete obedience to the law is imputed, given to us. Technically speaking, our sins were imputed to Jesus his righteousness was imputed to us. I'm liking this second part of the transaction a whole lot better than the first part of the transaction. Now we have company merger number two. We have uh, the first company, that's us plus Adam, that's deeply in debt. And now we have another company that comes and buys us out. It's Jesus Christ. And his company has limitless assets. The companies merge. And now the companies share their liabilities and their assets. But this time, the assets of the one company, Jesus Christ, are so huge, <coughs> infinite, that they completely wipe out the liability of the other company, me joined to Adam. All of Christ's righteousness gets credited to our formerly bankrupt righteousness account. How cool is that? This is imputed righteousness. 
God reckons to us, credits to us, all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on with verses 18 and 19. I think most people are staying awake. All right. This is tough stuff. I appreciate you guys bearing, it, uh, bearing with me and hanging in. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, the imputed sin of Adam, so the result of one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin results in condemnation for all. Adam's sin results in condemnation for all. We're all condemned to hell because we're wrapped together in this sin problem with Adam. But Jesus Christ's righteousness brings life for all. Jesus Christ's righteousness brings life for all. It doesn't say that everyone gets life, that everyone goes to heaven. It's not a universalism. Because Jesus died, everybody's okay. But Jesus Christ's death brings life. Now, I was at a wedding reception at the Cohasset Country Club uh, yesterday evening, and there were some high school or young college students walking around with trays of hors d'oeuvres. And they would bring the tray of hors d'oeuvres. And if it was stuffed mushrooms, I wouldn't take one. But if it was anything else, I would take one. Because that's what I like, anything but mushrooms. The point is, the waiter was bringing me the hors d'oeuvres. And I was to choose whether I was going to take one or not. Jesus Christ brings righteousness to all. He walks around the sanctuary and offers to all. But not all choose righteousness. Not all choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ. But in Christ, in his righteousness, we have the offer of heaven. Through Jesus Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. Through Jesus Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous, imputed with righteousness. Christ's death for sin, mine and Adam's, is imputed, reckoned, credited to me and becomes my death for sin. Christ's righteousness is imputed, reckoned, credited to me and becomes my righteousness. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we trade in our filthy rags for his royal robe of righteousness. I'd like to return, if we could, for just a minute uh, to the lost son, the prodigal son of Luke 15 on page 1035. You can turn there. You don't have to turn there. I want you to see that the prodigal son was guilty and deserved punishment. He was guilty. He knew he had made a big mistake. He was going back, admitting that he had blown it before heaven and his father. The prodigal son was unrighteous and unworthy to enter his father's home, and he knew that. He admitted to that. Like the prodigal son, we also are guilty and deserve eternal punishment in hell. I don't like it, but it's what the Bible teaches. We're yoked with Adam. We share in Adam's guilt, and we have our own sin that we're responsible for before God as well. We're guilty, and we deserve hell. This is the condemnation that Paul speaks about in Romans 5. But like the prodigal son, we also are unrighteous and unworthy of entrance into heaven. We're guilty and deserve hell, and we're unrighteous, and we don't deserve heaven. It's kind of the same thing, two different ways to say it. 
But that's where we stand for a holy and righteous God. You can say it's no fault of my own. Actually, you can blame your parents for your problem. My dad's here this morning. I can blame my dad, although I'm adopted, so I can't really blame my dad. But you can blame your parents for your sin problem. You inherited from your parents. You inherited from their parents all the way back to Adam. Now, I don't teach my teenagers to blame their sin on their parents. That's not a good teaching for, for high school kids. But it's the theological truth. But here's the heart of the gospel. Even though we come into this world in a state of rebellion towards God and we deserve condemnation, Jesus Christ takes upon himself our sin and condemnation. Jesus Christ takes upon himself our sin and condemnation. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Big theological term. Jesus being the substitute, taking our place. And now right next to that, substitutionary atonement, I want you to take your pencil and write in big letters A and D and underline it. Because a lot of times when we talk about what Jesus has done for us, we stop at the cross and this idea of substitutionary atonement, and we don't go the next step, which is what we're talking about this morning, imputed righteousness. Not only does Jesus Christ take our punishment and our penalty, our sin is imputed to him, but Jesus Christ imputes, reckons, credits to us his righteousness. That's the second half of the transaction. Sometimes I think it gets a little short-changed, at least in my preaching. I focus more on the cross and and the imputing of my sin to Jesus, not so much on Jesus imputing his righteousness to me. But I believe that that's what Paul is teaching us here in Romans chapter 5. All right, we're now through with the doctrinal portion of this message. It's time to take a little intermission uh, before we take a look at the application of this doctrine to our, to our daily lives. So if you guys would stand and stretch, the praise team's going to come and lead us uh, in a song.